Last evening I explained the first meditative absorption, the first jhana. I'll read now what it says in here about the second one. Obviously they go step by step. It's a process which one goes through in its order until one learns to be able to go to any one of them at any time, jump from any one to another one, go upward or backward, and then have them at one's disposal at any time. What it says here about the second one. Again, a person with the subsiding of thinking and pondering by gaining inner tranquility and unity of mind reaches and remains in the second jhana, which is free from thinking and pondering, born of concentration, filled with delight and happiness. I'll explain that first. It goes on a little further. I'll explain this part of it first. The thinking and pondering is a way of translating vipaka vichara, which actually means initial and sustained application. So what happens is that the first jhana, the first meditative absorption has five factors. And the five factors are, the first one is the initial application, which means sitting down and putting one's mind on the breath. It is compared to the striking of the bell or the gong. And the sustained application is compared to the tone of the gong as it keeps going like so. The striking is the initial application, the tone that keeps going is the sustained application. These are the first two factors of the first meditative absorption, obviously, that one sits down, puts one's mind on the breath and stays with it. And they are no longer necessary in the second uh, jhana because one is now already concentrated. So what is being said here is that the first two factors disappear and then there are only the other three are left but of the, of the other three which are left the one that is the most prominent in the first jhana is no longer prominent namely the delightful sensation that is no, no longer um, a factor of concentration it remains in the background, but it's no longer a factor of concentration. So with the subsiding of initial and sustained application, it's always, you know, not always, but very often translated wrong as thinking and pondering, because vitaka and vichara are words in Pali which are also used in other occasions where they do mean thinking and pondering. But they don't mean that in meditation, of course. I mean, who wants to think and ponder when they want to meditate? So, um, by gaining inner tranquility and unity of mind. Now, in the second uh, jhana, the unity of mind is, of course, much greater than in the first one, because the first one is a bit exciting. Now, the second one is still a bit, uh, a bit exciting, but it's far more unified. One doesn't have to try anymore. The unification of mind means that the absorption is becoming real. If one is absorbed in something, one doesn't know anything outside of it. 
When one has a book which is absolutely fascinating, one comes absorbed in the content of the book. One has no idea of time. One also forgets sometimes where one is. One is only concerned with what's in that book. It's the same here. The unity of mind arises where the one is totally within that chapter. And it becomes far more tranquil because of the fact that the body sensations are lost. His former true but subtle perception of the light and happiness born of detachment vanishes. At that time there arises a true but subtle perception of the light and happiness born of concentration and he becomes one who is conscious of this delight and happiness. So in the first instance the delightful sensation was due to detachment. Detachment from sensual desire. Here the delight and happiness are due to true concentration. So we could say that only the second jhana brings the true concentration. The first jhana is in essence so easy a matter that one can make it arise at will when one has practiced under any circumstances in a crowded bus sitting and talking to somebody who isn't very pleasant makes things much more pleasant whenever there are many people in this world whose inner inner feeling or inner being is angry and uh, not very easy to um, to stomach so if one makes the first dana arise without even having to close one's eyes it makes life much simpler it is, uh, and the first jhana in that uh, respect is nothing but the pleasant sensation in the body. The pleasant sensation, which at that time, of course, and you have to talk to somebody, isn't very strong, but it's strong enough to uh, make the situation quite uh, pleasant. So it's only the second jhana, the second absorption, which is really concentration. Because as from this explanation which I've just given, you can see that the pleasant sensation doesn't need a great deal of concentration. It's just detachment. It's detachment from wanting that person to be otherwise, or wanting to be liked, or wanting to have a nice situation. It's total detachment from wanting. That's its main aspect. One doesn't want. And the less one wants in this life, the easier life is. The more one wants, the more unpleasant it becomes. It's a gradual process. The more one wants, the more unpleasant life becomes. And the less one wants, the easier it is. So this first jhana arises out of the detachment from wanting. There's nothing wanted, so it can arise any time at all. But you can see it doesn't need a great deal of concentration. It's just being detached from all that that's going on. And then, now to have the second jhana, of course, 
one point of measure is necessary. So there are actually then the three other factors of, medit- of the um, uh, absorptions are then still left, which are the um, delight, the, uh, the joy, and the one-pointedness. And here, the, um, it says delight and happiness, born of, um, born of uh, concentration. It is the word happiness, I don't like it so much here. I would say joy. Because there are different words in Pali for happiness and joy, and some of them are quite worldly, and some are these meditative states. And I think the word joy, in English, inner joy, does connote better what is happening than the word happiness. So one has the subtle perception, the true but subtle perception of the life and happiness born of concentration, and he becomes one who is conscious of this. In this way, some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. Now, again, one is trained to do this and one has different perceptions. Now, obviously, the first one, I said us already yesterday, the uh, delightful sensation is the automatic antidote for anger, for ill will. And because ill will and anger are so unpleasant for the person who has them, uh, they can also be unpleasant for people around that person if they are influenced by, by the person, by other people's emotions. One should uh, be aware of the fact that one has this automatic assistance through the meditation that can take away this unpleasantness within. This unpleasantness of anger doesn't even have to have a focus, I'm angry at this or that or him or her. The anger as such is a feeling within which has strong movement, as a strong, unpleasant bubbling inside. And because of the concentration of the uh, detachment from all that happens in the first jhana, this, of course, subsides. And the pleasant sensation becomes to the forefront. So anyone who knows him or herself to have problems with anger should be especially keen to get to that first state of of, um, absorption. If one has been sitting watching the breath and thinking, 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 one may think it's difficult. It's not. It's very simple. The only thing that's necessary to do is just let go of everything one wants. Why not try for five minutes to let go of everything one wants? One can pick it up again after five minutes and add to it any number of things, a whole gamut of what's available. But just let it go for five minutes and want nothing. And it's so simple to do. Just want nothing for five minutes. Neither appreciation, nor love, nor, nor concentration, nor uh, uh, praise, nor anything. Just nothing. Just being there. 
It's worthwhile to try anyway, to what it's like to want nothing. It's the only way where there is that inner feeling of solidity. Anger can be not only damaging to the person who has it, but it can be damaging to the people around that person if it's strong enough. So one becomes a damaging influence rather than a peaceful influence. So it is extremely important to see the need to do something about it. Now, not that other people don't have to do this, the, the concentration for the absorption, but especially uh, the first one is against anger. Now, the second one, the joys which arises, is the, first of all, is the support system for self-confidence. In the second jhana, the main concentration is focused towards the emotional joy, whereas in the first one it was the pleasant, physical sensation, and the second one is the emotional joy. And one needs to be able to differentiate so that one knows what's happening, later on one can play around. It's like a painter who first has to know how to paint an anatomy an anatomical correct horse or person and later can have his own ideas of impressionism. An impressionist who can't paint a horse isn't going to be a very good painter. So the same is with a person in the jhanas who can do the concentration path. First, step by step. Later, one can play with it and that's actually what it's called playing with the jhanas. One can do anything one likes with them. Use the one that is most um, most useful for one's own uh, advancement. The higher jhanas are the vipassana jhanas, the inside jhanas, these are the lower ones. One can't go to the higher ones without having done the lower ones first. It's like, you know, climb, going through school. You can't go to university unless you've at least done school. Now here, with this one, the joy which arises <clears throat> and which is an emotional feeling brings the self-confidence of knowing that one is no longer dependent upon other people nor outside circumstances for one's joy. One is independent. And being independent makes <coughs> not just the difference between dependent and independent. It has as its result that one doesn't want. It's okay whatever is happening. One doesn't want to own. One doesn't want to have. One doesn't want to become. One doesn't want to get. One can actually find out what it's like to be, probably for the first time in one's life. Not by looking at nature, not by listening to a waterfall, it's all outside situations coming in through the sense contacts, but by just being. 
And most people, well, not most, but many people talk about this, but it has to come from inner independence. As long as one is dependent upon outside situations for one's inner joy, one is a slave because they don't work out the way one wants them. And one has to run after them, sometimes halfway around the world to find them. And then when one gets there, they've already changed. They're no longer the same. And then one has to go back the other half of the world. So this independence is the freedom which has as it has then the residual effect of being without the craving that is constantly within a person for sensual gratification. We have three cravings which keep us in samsara, in the round of birth and death. And they are the craving to be bhavatanha, the craving not to be the bhavatanha, and the craving for sensual gratification. Now the craving not to be is just the other side of the coin for the craving to be, it does no difference. The craving to be is I, wa- I want to survive, I'm it, and the craving not to be everything is too terrible, they can see how they get along without me. So that's the same ego illusion. But the uh, sensual gratification craving, which arises, of course, out of the craving to be, is the one that, although it's not totally eliminated, is minimized to the extent where it's no longer a burden. Until that time, it's a burden. One's got to do something about it. One's got to get something, one's got to become something, one's got to be somewhere, one's got to know something. All those things, these um, are necessary in order to gratify whatever it is one happens to think that one is missing at that moment. Whereas if the inner joy is available through the meditative process, none of that arises. One's got what one wanted. The um, pleasant sensation which was in the first jhana, is in the background. But joy is in the foreground. And joy has already arisen at the same time as the pleasant sensation in the first jhana. Piti and sukha arise together and ekagata, one-pointedness. But at the time of the pleasant physical sensation, that one takes pride of place because it appears to be more impactful. It's very interesting to have such an interesting sensation. So the mind stays with it. But then, as one knows that one isn't meditating for the purpose of pleasant sensations, and the Buddha says that in other suttas, that one knows very well that isn't the purpose of the meditation, one lets go of this gross state where one enjoys this pleasant sensation and comes to the emotional joy, which is a much more subtle and much more refined state than being enmeshed in the pleasant physical sensation. One shouldn't misunderstand that while 
while it is a physical sensation that one puts on attention on the body in the first jhana, one puts attention on that sensation, on the feeling. It's got nothing to do with putting attention on the body. It, it, it is within. Now, obviously the Buddha says here that these are different perceptions that we can gain through training. And that there are these different states of consciousness, which we could say instead of perception, because that was mentioned earlier, that this is a way of uh, translation. There are ours through the training of meditation, and because they become part of our being, because when one practices, then there is a different attitude in daily life. The attitude changes. Things which used to be very important and were promising us the moon are seen for what they are. They are worldly, outside of ourselves, and have nothing to do with our inner life. And we realize <coughs> that everything we've ever looked for is already within. We don't have to get it. We don't have to go anywhere. It's already there. When we see that, of course, lots of restlessness also vanishes. Restlessness is generated because of the fact that we don't have what we want. So we've got to go somewhere to get it. And people do go somewhere to get it. All the movement that we see everywhere is generated through that, trying to get what one hasn't got. The first two jhanas are compared, first one, with a person wandering through the desert and being parched with thirst. Well, that's sitting there thinking, 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 thinking. And then seeing in the distance a pond of water. And of course getting all excited, joyfully excited about the promise that this pond of water holds to refresh and to uh, still the thirst. So the first one is exciting, the first jhana. It's not wildly exciting, one doesn't jump up and down with excitement, but it is. it hasn't got the um, effect of being calm. People sometimes say, I'm, I was very calm. The only thing that it could be said is, I wasn't thinking at that time, which appears to be very calm compared to all the thinking that's going on. But the first jhana does not have really calmness in it. It has actually the joyful excitement of seeing something within, not with the eyes, seeing something within which promises a great deal of um, fulfillment. So that seeing that brings excitement. And the second jhana is compared to drawing near to the water pond and standing at the edge of it and being completely delighted that now the water is at one's feet. 
Well, obviously, there's still some excitement in that. That joyfulness also has excitement in it because it is still not fulfillment. And yet people will say, oh, I was so calm. Well, but they didn't think for a few minutes. So that does feel calm compared to what we usually do. But as one goes along on this training for different states of consciousness, one will actually notice and know what it means to be really calm. To be really calm is a different proposition altogether and also explained in different similes. I'll just use those two at the moment. The first three, and I will uh, explain the third one also, are simple. Are simple to do. There, everybody is capable of that without even very much training because the mind has an inner yearning for it. Everybody would like to become peaceful and happy. And since peaceful and happy has to happen from one's mind, from one's inner being, what else is there to do except sit down and do it? The fourth and the following ones are more difficult because they have deeper states of consciousness or higher states of consciousness and they have therefore have to have the first three as their foundation. It happens sometimes that people accidentally fall into the fourth one without even having much training or any knowledge of the first three. If that should happen, a person would probably not even know how to um, resurrect that state or would not even want to because it wouldn't be an understood experience. It would just be something very strange. So again, I would like to say that at the end of any of the absorptions, whether it's the first one or the second one, to see the impermanence of this very pleasant state by its dissolving it moves at that time. It is impossible to keep it going in its completeness without the meditative stand. As I said before, the first jhana can be contained under all circumstances, but not in its depth. And the second, of course, also. So we see how it dissolves, and this is very important because of the fact that we don't like to have the nice things disappear. We'd love to have the unpleasant things disappear. And the second thing is to recapitulate how did we get there so that we have a pathway established for ourselves with which we can always go along the pathway of meditation, the calm meditation, which eventually then gives the mind the ability to gain the profound insight which changes oneself completely. Without this calm, there is not a hope of profundity. There is certainly the ability to see things a little differently while one is sitting in 
a protected environment such as here, but there is no way of the profound depth because the mind doesn't have the power which it gains through one-pointedness. A mind which can't stay put, how can it stay put on a profound depth of insight? If it's still jumping from one thing to the next, it can jump to some insight, but not to the depth of it. So we practice the calm meditation in order to gain insight but while the calm meditation doesn't work yet, as it doesn't for some, some of the things which arise in the mind at the time are for insight. If we see them for what they are, and I'll repeat that, namely, I have said it already, but I will repeat it, not only that we can substitute anything that arises with the meditation subject, the breath, but we can also inquire into its source, cause and effect, another name for the Buddha's teaching. The cause for it arising, what is it? Why is it happening? And every answer we get is another question. The bottom line is ego, but we have to get to that bottom line ourselves. And if we see that bottom line quite clearly for any disturbance that arises, it helps us immensely. It helps us to see ourselves in a light where, where we don't blame or regret, where we can actually not take ourselves quite so seriously. It isn't really that world shattering whether we get what we want. We could take ourselves a little more lightly and accept things the way they are and not think that whatever we want is the most important thing in the world. It doesn't really matter. If we would let go of what we want, then peace would finally come. First and second noble truth, Dukkha, as part of existence with only one cause, wanting, craving, getting something. Makes sense, doesn't it? Why not do it for a change? Five minutes. Each day, five minutes. Or maybe twice a day, five minutes. That would be so beneficial to everyone. Just letting it all go. And just being for a moment. Just being there with total mindfulness and recognizing what it means to be. But no, we don't, we don't just be. We always have all that convolution what we are and what we want to become. The ideas of it all. So, this the ability to gain inner joy, we have that mode of being which does not crave so much. It doesn't remove it completely. It doesn't uproot it. It's just um, help on the way. 
And if we, our concentration isn't good enough, but our thinking process constantly interrupts, it's a very helpful way to investigate why. Especially if the same thing keeps coming up over and over again. And if we see the reason why and ask the questions over and over again, we will see that all these reasons are all self-made. They have no basis in absolute truth. They've all been self-generated, self-originated, and self-fantasized. Um, That's all it is. That will help us. And if our, day, if our meditation doesn't help us in daily life, as I said before, we're sitting for nothing. So it has to have a connection with that. The third one, I will read what the what is written here. Again, after the fading away of the light, he dwells in equanimity, mindful and clearly aware, and he experiences in his body that pleasant feeling of which the noble ones say. Noble ones are those that have at least seen Nibbana once. Happy dwells the person of equanimity and mindfulness, and he reaches and remains in the third jhana. His former true but subtle sense of delight and happiness, born of concentration, vanishes, and there arises at that time a true but subtle sense of equanimity and happiness, and he becomes one who is conscious of this true but subtle sense of equanimity and happiness. In this way, some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. Now, maybe it's quite clear from what I'm reading that one needs the training to do that because just reading that isn't going to do much, is it? I mean, one can see that one is happy and then one has the light, one has equanimity. But the, uh, the training is the uh, um, most important aspect of it all. So what happens in the third one is the fading away of the light, the fading away of this inner joy brings a different state. And the Buddha says in a different uh, discourse, deliberately, not waiting for grace to descend upon us, my words, not the Buddha, or for having some good luck that now we can concentrate, but deliberately. And I will explain that again, as I've already done many times in the last course, not here, that wherever we put our mind, that's where we're going. Now, if we put our mind on anger and hate, obviously that's what we're going to have. If we put our mind on loving kindness, well, evidently that's all we're going to think about. If we are, for instance, in a meditative state, and we put our mind towards the first jhana, recognizing the fact that it needs, without thinking, to become aware of the inner experience, obviously that's where we're going to go. If you want to cook, you're going to go in the kitchen and put your mind on cooking. Otherwise, there's not going to be any cooking being done. If you want to dig in the garden, you're going to put your mind on digging in the garden 
go and get the tools, go in the garden and start digging. Wherever we put our mind, that's where we're going to go. And if we don't put our mind in the right direction, it's a real pity. It's not only a pity for oneself. One affects the others with it. It's a great pity. Because there's only one direction in the Buddha's teaching. That is, through calm to insight. There's only one way. There aren't different choices. And the only thing that matters is the inner situation within each person. Anything that's outside, what could it possibly matter? The world, it keeps going. Nobody cares whether we're here or not. Or they might know that we're here, and they might know that, a few people might know that we're here, and they might, you know, think we're going to come out again one day. But meanwhile, who cares? So what does it matter what's going on out there? Why do we have to think about anything I want, I want to get, I want to be, I want to go, I want to become? What for? In here. There's nothing else to be found except this. And it's all there for each person. And if we put our mind on the negative way of thinking, obviously that's what we're going to have. What else? What else could we possibly get? But if we put our mind on going into a calm state which brings joy and peacefulness, well, obviously that's what we're going to get. What else could we get? So when we sit down on the pillow, the first thing is to let go of all the rubbish. Everything that's in there, just let it swim away. And then, put one's mind on a feeling of gratitude to be given such an opportunity to actually get to know what's going on inside of oneself and to hear the Buddha's teachings in their completeness as they're written in the Pali Canon. Gratitude is love and if that doesn't help I don't know what will Something's got to give somewhere. If gratitude doesn't arise in the heart, the whole thing doesn't work. It's got to arise. Where else can you get this? Name a place. Name a situation. Gratitude, without that, there's no devotion. There's no way of loving what one is doing. There's a constant up and down and sideways and forward and backward. Now I see it, now I don't. Now I want it, now I don't. This I've heard, this I haven't. This I'm going to do, this I can't. Who's going to be unhappy? Only oneself. Nobody else. So if there isn't that kind of feeling, the meditation cannot flourish. It's got to have gratitude and devotion, respect and reverence. 
toward that which is the greatest idea. And that gratitude will open the heart, and that's the first thing that happens when one sits down. Second thing, determine. Determine to stop thinking. What could there be possibly to be thinking about? What you did last week, last year, next year, next week, tomorrow, what could there be possibly important about that? Why not shed it all? Forget it. It doesn't matter. It's all gone. It's all the past. And the future is the yet to come. It never comes. When the future comes, it's always called the present. It never will come. Tomorrow will never come. When it comes, it's always called today. You might as well forget about it. Today is now. This minute. That's all it is. So with this minute, it's the only one we all have. There is no other minute. This is it. It's the only minute there is. Now, if we waste that minute through all the ruminations in the mind, through the dislike and the rejection, through the worries and the fears and the hopes and the ideas and the convolutions and the comparisons, oh, for heaven's sakes, we're wasting our lives. It's the only minute we've got. What a waste of time. Death is constantly with us. Age has nothing to do with it. People die at any age whatsoever. If you ever go to an old cemetery, which I love to do, you find tombstones from one hour old to 120. If you're lucky, maybe even older. I don't know, I haven't found anything older than that. So just because you're not ancient yet, doesn't mean you've got lots of time. Get some vega going, which is urgency. The urgency of doing it, to get peace in here. And if you get peace inside of yourself, you are a peace ambassador. And if you've got ill will in here, you've got an ill, you're an ill will ambassador. Which one do you want to be? Which one do you want to propagate? Which one do you want to uh, throw out into the universe? Which one do you want to have other people to feel about you? That you're a peace messenger or an ill will messenger? It's all one's own choice. Determination will do it. Start out with gratitude and devotion and then the determination. The determination of directing your mind in the direction of dropping everything that's going on in the mind and just being with first with the breath or the meditation subject and then as you become aware of your inner being notice whether the feelings which arise are different from the sensations that you have when you're usually sitting from that comes joy which is the, which is the second one now the third one we have to be very clear about that because here the words used and it's difficult to um, just, um, translate it exactly. He, he says here, dwells in equanimity, mindful and clearly aware, experiences in his body the pleasant feeling of which the noble ones say, happy dwells the man of equanimity and mindfulness. 
it appears as if one is going back to the body sensations, but it's got nothing to do with body sensations. The reason it is said like that is because that is how we become aware of things, what is in within. It, hasn't, it isn't a body feeling at all. The third jhana is a feeling of contentment, which is about the best word I can find for it. Because the joy which we had in the second brings about the feeling of contentment of the third. Now the simile used is that the one who was standing by the water pond now bends down to drink. So now getting all this water he feels very content. And that feeling of contentment is the first real feeling of peacefulness. Up to then there isn't really peace. All this idea of that there is some calm is the feeling that without thinking it feels much calmer than with thinking, which is true. But the first step of peacefulness is in this one, when the contentment arises. Now, this third one, the contentment and peacefulness, has a very uh, um, useful, also very useful um, aspect for our daily life because our search for fulfillment has always been outside of ourselves. Somebody is supposed to give it to us. If we could just see the absurdity of that one day. Somebody is supposed to give it to us and then we're going to feel fulfilled in here. It's impossible. How can another person put peacefulness inside of us? It's just no way, or not just a person, a situation. How can anything that comes through our senses, including the thinking, how can that bring peacefulness? We are totally dependent upon that outer condition. And that outer condition will obviously change, like everything changes, and then the outer condition becomes one that creates the opposite of peacefulness. So here we have finally come to the point where we recognize the fact that peace exists within us. And because it exists within us, we can get at it. But we've got to stop thinking and we've got to stop emoting which is just as important as uh, stopping to think. All these emotions of like and dislike, of, uh, of um, having a rejection or um, drawing to oneself, that's got to stop. If we can't stop all that, how are we going to get peaceful and contented? We've always uh, in the past thought that we're only going to be contented if we get what we want. Well, is it really possible that a person can get everything they want in this lifetime and then keep it? Is that really possible? 
isn't it much more sensible to think that the only way to be contented is to not want it? And then there's nothing to worry about? So when we get to this point of having had the inner joy, obviously, the contentment which arises is something that we do know, and the joy also, from our uh, ordinary life, but here it is much stronger, and it has a quality which is far more, um, has far greater strength. The quality is much stronger. And so, because of that, it can not only have a great impact, but the realization that it has arisen outside, out, out of oneself is immediate. There's no, one doesn't have to think about it. One realizes immediately that this is actually what one has been looking for. Now, this kind of thing then has to be seen as also impermanent. And that is at the end of the meditation. Because if one doesn't see that as impermanent, one may think one has arrived at the end of one's uh, practice already because one can get in there when one wants. Eventually one can. But if we see that it's impermanent and that although it has a residual effect, it does not prevent dukkha from arising again, then one will continue to practice. This um, contentment, peacefulness, which is the um, most prominent feature of the third jhana, has as its um, counteracts our restlessness. Restlessness and worry. Because now we have already the um, what we were looking for and we don't have to go on looking restlessness and worry is compared by the Buddha to being a slave they push us around we're not in charge of ourselves and as they push us around we are no we have no peace of course because we're being pushed around just like a slave is and we cannot be master of ourselves. We can't look after ourselves and have the kind of emotions and thoughts arise which we would like. So the being a slave is not a very good situation. Having been able to gain a foothold in the meditative absorptions, our hindrances, while not being uprooted, are certainly diminished. And as they're being diminished, our whole practice path becomes easier. If our practice path doesn't become easier, most people either fall by the wayside or just stop somewhere along the line without going any further. But this is the pathway that the Buddha himself took. And it is one on which we enjoy the journey. Whether we get 
to the end of this journey or not is not our concern. The main concern is the journey itself. And if the journey is enjoyable, obviously we're going to continue on it. Most people will not do so if it isn't enjoyable. The word equanimity which is used here is also used in the fourth jhana and mindfulness is used in the fourth jhana, clearly aware. Now, in the third jhana, the clear awareness is a feature of it because if that were not so, the peacefulness could easily turn the mind into fogginess. But the mind's very peaceful. That's why it is said that in the spiritual faculty, concentration and energy have to balance. The energy that keeps clearly aware and mindful, but is completely balanced with the concentration which is one-pointed. So one-pointedness is a feature of all of them that doesn't disappear. The others have successively disappeared. First the um, initial application, then the sustained application, then the uh, pleasant sensation, PT, they have disappeared. Now the joyfulness, while it is still in the background, is no longer the main feature. The main feature now is the contentment and the the peacefulness which has arisen. With the first two, there's a feeling of excitement. With the third one, there's a feeling of settling down. A feeling of settling down and being at ease. This is the first time when the mind is totally at ease. It doesn't have anything that it wants. Now, without any wanting, totally contented, without any wanting, it experiences what it means to be without desire, even for a moment. These are all momentary aspects of recognizing the way to complete liberation. The liberation from Dukkha is through the wishless gate. This is a foretaste of a momentary state of being where we don't wish for anything. We've got all we want. And then we know that this is the only way to be peaceful, to want nothing. Now, to say that, it's all very well. To experience that makes a lot of difference. As long as we want something, there is agitation. doesn't matter what we want. As soon as this wanting is gone, even for a short time, there is peace. In here, in the third one, we, we experience it. We are not wanting. Peacefulness. No agitation at all. Just settling with them. And with that not wanting comes fearlessness, 
because fear arises out of the fact whether we can get what we want or not and having got it whether we can keep it so we gain qualities within ourselves which we would have a hard time gaining otherwise in fact it's called oops In fact, it would probably be impossible for us to gain any of these things without having the meditative experience. To gain wishlessness and to gain fearlessness, even in a small measure, even just as a sign of what it's like to be like that, brings with it the urgency to practice and brings with it the understanding what this practice is all about. Without understanding it completely, it's not going to flourish. Without loving it completely, it's not going to flourish. It's got to have both. One's got to love it and one's got to understand it. And these, of course, these absorptions, have also the quality of clarifying the mind. The muddle which is in the mind comes from all this thinking, opinionating, and um, all our future and past ideas. That's where the muddle comes from. When now in the jhanas, it's impossible to have future and past. It's got to be one-pointed. The more often the mind is one-pointed, the more often we clarify it. And as we clarify it, eventually it becomes clear enough to see. And that's what a calm meditation means because without it, the muddle in the mind isn't going to disappear. It's going to arise again and again and again. Why should it disappear? There's no reason for it to disappear all of a sudden. But when the mind can become one-pointed, obviously, all the rest of the stuff disappears for the time being. So because we clarify the mind at that time, we have a much easier time to see reality, absolute reality, as compared to the relativity in which we live. That's enough on, on that subject, the first three jhanas. I will um, tomorrow talk about mindfulness again, because the first three jhanas are the easy ones to do, comparatively, so that I will wait with the following ones until I have finished with the explanation on mindfulness, which I haven't done. Tomorrow also, please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments.
And now think of your most beloved person and let the feeling of love for that person arise and fill you, fill your heart and fill you completely from head to toe. And now transfer that same feeling that you have for your most beloved person to yourself. Fill yourself with that love from head to toe and surround yourself with it. Think of your most beloved person again. Experience the feeling for that person and then transfer the same feeling to whoever sits closest to you in this room and fill him or her with the same love that you have for your most beloved person. And now extend that same love that you have for your most beloved person to everyone in this room. Fill everyone with that same feeling and surround everyone with it, making no difference between people.
think of your most beloved person again. Explain the feeling. And then transfer the feeling to your parents. Filling them and embracing them. The same love. Think of your most beloved person again and extend the same feeling that you have for that person to those that are close to you, near and dear to you. Embrace them all with the same love. Think of your most beloved person again, experience the feeling, extend it to all your friends, making no difference between anyone. Fill them and embrace them with that same love. Think of your most beloved person again. Experience the feeling of love for that person. 
and then extend it to all those people who are part of your life. Neighbors, people at work, acquaintances, relations, anyone you can think of. Fill them and surround them with the same kind of love you have for your beloved person. Change the feeling for your beloved person again and then extend it to anyone whom you might not like very much. Same love for anyone and everyone. Experience the love for your most beloved person again. Fill yourself with it from head to toe. Let it flow out of your heart to people near and far. Experience a beautiful feeling of loving without wanting to be loved.
Let the love from your heart flow without any obstruction. Recognizing it as the only emotion which brings joy to your heart. Now put your attention back on yourself. Feel the joy and contentment which comes from loving, from giving it without wanting. Fill yourself with that joy, that contentment, and surround yourself with love. May beings everywhere have love in their hearts. 